Okay, well, this is the um, eighth week, believe it or not, that we've looked at the question, how can I be more like Jesus? Or can I be more like Jesus? Or Paul says it, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of the sharing in his sufferings. Becoming like him. Paul said, I want to become like Christ. And then he thinks of the, the, the worst part, in his death. And so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. So the question is, do I really want to be like Jesus? Is it something that uh, I really want to be? And these messages that, that I've preached have not really answered and looked at that question, but more this question. How can I be more like Jesus? It was a, I wasn't asking your motive, I was just telling you how, some of the things we could do to be more like Jesus. I came across this post uh, a couple of weeks ago and I saved it for today. It said, uh, this year was a resolution. This year I want to be more like Jesus. And then he lists some things that he can do to be more like Jesus. First he says, hang out, hang out with sinners. Upset religious people. Tell stories that make people think. Choose unpopular friends. Be kind, loving, and merciful. And my favorite, take naps on boats. <laughs> I was talking with Jennifer about that, and she says, you know, David Phelps, and David Phelps is one of her favorite singers. Uh, has a song called I Want to Live Like a King. And uh, so I went and looked at the words to that. And I want you to just listen. promise I won't sing them. I just want to share them with you. My thirst for the things of this earth isn't quenched by diamonds or pearls. One man lived the life that I want. He's the one they said ruled the world. Though he only wore a crown of thorns and he never owned a thing. I want to live like a king and my decree it will ring. Love will rule everything. I want to live like a king. This king did the strangest of things. He befriended the sick and the poor. There was no one too wrong, too right, too black, too white for him to love. He built no walls, left no unopened doors. Well, now I could croon a million other tunes, but there's just one I want to sing. I want to live like a king. I want to be wiser and stronger. I just want to make every move be the one he'd want to see from me. There's just such power, such healing power, in every word that he said, in every deed 
that he did. I want to live like a king. Love will rule everything. I want to live like a king. Those are awesome words. How can we live like a king? How can we be like Jesus? He was the strangest king ever. And today I want to expand on the message way back from the second week. And you know, you may or may not remember, but I talked about Jesus always seemed to know the right thing to do. He always seemed to know the right thing to say. Wouldn't you like to be able to do that? Mm-hmm. You always know what the right things to do or say. Jesus always seemed to know that. He always knew the direction that he was going. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. Jesus had a compass that helped him move towards the goal that God had for his life. When I was in uh, the Army, advanced training, I was in an escape and evasion class. And they took us to this mock prison camp. And they gently treated us like prisoners. Uh, you know, they didn't beat us, they just acted like they were going to. And they didn't feed us worms and cabbage. They actually fed us chicken and rice soup that was just exactly what Jennifer feeds me all the time. And I came home and I said, hey, that's what we ate at the prison camp. Um, it was pretty good. But then after we had gone through the prison camp experience, they let us escape. They opened the door and let us out. And they said, okay, now here, here's, here's the game. Here's the uh, object. They said, to your south, there's a paved road that runs across all the way across the base. Stay inside the fence, go to the south, and you'll hit the paved road. But there's a, a, a group of soldiers out looking for you because you've escaped. And if they catch you before you get to the paved road, you've got to come back to the prison camp and you're going to stay here all night. And I thought, well, I don't want to do that. And so they sent us out to go south. We had a compass. They uh, gave us a compass when we, when we got in the army and we had this compass. And so the, the idea was to make it to that road. And the only clue to direction was it's south. And so my only thought, stay out of the path of the searchers. But the key was, keep looking at that compass and going south. Keep going south. Jesus had that kind of compass for his life. It was the cross. Writer of Hebrews tells us, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus had a cross for a compass. The will of God was his guide, and his love for us was his motive, and he accomplished the will of God in his life. He knew what he faced. He knew what was ahead of him. Jesus had no uh, 
illusions about what was in front of him. You know, before we even look at the scripture I want us to look at today, I want us to understand very clearly that Jesus knew what he faced. We're going to look at Matthew, and uh, in the 26th chapter of Matthew, he told his disciples what was going to happen. In verse 2, he says, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. He said, It's only two days till the Passover, and at the Passover, they're going to hand me over to be crucified. So two days before what happened in the passage we're going to look at, Jesus had already told them what was going to happen. And that's not the first time that he told them. You know, earlier in Matthew, in chapter 20, it says, Now as Jesus was going to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. He told them exactly how it was going to happen. The chief priest was going to come and arrest him. They will condemn him to death, and they will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. But on the third day, he will be raised to life. Jesus knew what was in front of him. He knew what it meant when he said his guide was the cross, his compass was the cross. He knew what was there. Before they had ever even arrived in Jerusalem, though, he told them the whole story. Uh, In uh, Matthew 17, it says, When they came together in Galilee... He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. You would have thought that that was clear enough that the disciples would have understood what was ahead of them, but they still didn't grasp everything that Jesus was saying. He told them what would happen. And if they had been listening... They wouldn't have been surprised. Even earlier, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus had warned them of the end result. He says, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So realizing that Jesus was totally aware of what was happening to him. He, he looked ahead to the cross. That was his compass for living. He was moving towards the cross. And as we venture into the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus, we're going to be looking at what I think is holy ground. It, it's it, and that kind of attitude. I want us to look at it. It's in Matthew chapter 26. In verse 38. This morning I'm going to read from the New International Version. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. 
He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away from me unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. And while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent away, sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Friend, do what you come for. Then the man stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cut it off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? He had a cross, he had a compass. The compass was a cross, and he was headed to the cross. At that same time, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. I'll read that last line again. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. I don't know if, uh, if you catch the agony there in the voice of Jesus. In verse 38, he expresses it. He says, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. The word overwhelmed in the Greek means I'm completely submerged. I'm totally encompassed in pain. Jesus says I'm plunged into pain. Luke puts it this way. He just says simply, being in agony. It was agony what Jesus was going through. And there were some causes for that agony. You know, they're, they're, some of them, you know, they're pretty obvious. The thought of Calvary was on his mind. We've been talk- he'd been talking about that uh, for, for weeks. He'd been talking about Calvary and the crucifixion. And you know, crucifixion was a horrible death. And Jesus had seen people crucified before. When he was only a boy, the road to Nazareth was the scene of a mass crucifixion by the Romans when a rebellion against Rome was put down. You know, so he must have seen those, those uh, re- rebels hanging on a cross at Jerusalem, at uh, Nazareth, I'm sorry. And now at 33 years old, his ministry is three short years. There's, you know, I've been here twice as long as Jesus' whole ministry. You know, 
It was only three years. And there's so much left to do. And he's less than 12 hours from his death. No wonder he's encompassed. He's immersed in, in sorrow and agony. But you know, I think there's another reason. And it's because of his loneliness. He has spent his life in this small band of disciples, these three years in this small band of disciples, he chose 12 men to be good friends, to share his life and his ministry with. And 11 of them are with him in the garden. One of them is already deserted to bring the authorities. You know, it's tough to lose a friend. You ever lost a friend? It's tough to lose a friend. It's tough to lose a friend to, to death. It's tough to lose a friend to moving away. But it's tough to lose a friend when the friendship breaks up. It's tough. And so he leaves eight disciples at the gate to the garden. And he takes three with him to pray. These are his closest friends. His specially chosen friends. Peter and James and John. And they can't even stay awake with him. He's told them what's going to happen. And they can't even stay awake with him. And so I think another reason for his agony is that he's by himself. He's got his 12, but he's still by himself. And then I think there's a third reason. It's the biggest reason. It's the one that is foretold in Scripture in Isaiah. Isaiah 53. Listen to what he says. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Do you catch what Isaiah said? passage talking about Jesus he's there in the garden he's going to be arrested he's going to be crucified he's going to die but it was our sin and our sorrows and our infirmities that brought him to this point because you see Jesus as you know was perfect he was one with God he was without sin and as he was looking forward to the next day he knew that he was going to become sin for the whole world that he was going to the cross to bear our sins in his body to the cross. Jesus who is perfect. He knew what sin was. He knew what it could do. He knew what it did for his people. He knew what it would do. He knew that the result of sin is death. He knew the scripture and that's what the scripture says. But the wages of sin is death. He knew that he was going to experience not just physical death, but that spiritual separation from God that comes when we're sinful. And he was in agony over that separation from God. You know, one of the lies of our culture, there, there are so many things that our culture has just drifted off and gotten so wrong, but one of them is that there are many paths to heaven. There are many paths to heaven. But Jesus said, this is the only way. This is the only path to heaven. And he says here in this passage, 
If there's any other way, Father, then let's do it. If there's any way, other way to heaven, let's do it. If you think a person could be baptized and get to heaven by being baptized by a church, I won't have to go through this. But baptism won't do it. If you think reincarnation is true, that I'm going to die and I'll get another chance and die and get another chance and keep getting more and more chances... To, to get to heaven, if, if that works, then let's not do this cross thing. Transcendental meditation. Do you believe, do you think that even without accepting Jesus, everyone will eventually get to heaven? Well, then why the cross? Why do that? If any of those things were true, Jesus wouldn't have had to have gone to the cross. And so Jesus looked into that cup and he saw hell. He saw the agony of crucifixion. The agony of separation from God. But he knew there was no other way to accomplish our salvation. And I think that's why the Garden of Gethsemane is such a holy place. Years ago when I went to Israel and visited my friend David who was a missionary over there. And I was over there for for about a month, not quite. And, uh, you know, but he was still working. He had a lot of days off, but uh, he was still working. And one, one day, one afternoon, he had some business he had to go to attend to, and I was left on my own, and I had the whole afternoon. I thought, what, what am I going to do with this whole afternoon by myself? And so I uh, walked from his apartment to the old city of Jerusalem. It was about a eight or ten block walk and I walked to the old city of Jerusalem and I, I crossed the Kidron Valley to the Garden of Gethsemane a, a garden next to the church that's full of old olive trees some of them say that they date all the way back to Jesus and there in the garden next to the church there was a bench and uh, I had my New Testament with me and I sat down and I read this passage in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I realized this was the place where Jesus paid for my sins. This is the place where it happened. It's a holy place. It's an awesome place. And you know, do you know that 78% of Americans believe in heaven? 60% of Americans believe in hell. But this is what I like. Americans believe that their chance of going to heaven is 78% and of going to hell 4%. Protestants, it's 80% and 4%. Catholics at 76% and 5%. Evangelicals as a whole, it's 88% and 3%. And those are all really interesting. But here's the, here's the really interesting one. People who say they have no religious belief at all, 61 of them percent believe they're going to heaven and only 9% to hell. Isn't that incredible? Even those 
who don't believe in heaven believe they're going to go there. Now, how does that compare with what Jesus said? You know what Jesus said about it? In Matthew 7, he said, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many there are who enter it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. Jesus said just the opposite of that. He said most folks aren't going to find their way to heaven. So let me just ask you this question. Do you believe that you're bad enough to go to hell? Everybody should go like this. Because you are. If you said, no, I'm good enough. Well, I am. I'm good enough to go to hell. Because if it were possible to be good enough to miss hell, Jesus would not have endured this great agony. Some say, I don't believe in hell. Well, if hell didn't exist, why did Jesus do this? You know, sin is, is an awful thing and it will destroy you. And Jesus said, if you die in your sins, not accepting the work of Jesus for on the cross, you will be separated from God forever. And the great agony of Jesus in the garden for that evening and on the cross the next day and in the grave for three days was for our eternal destiny. So it's holy ground. Gethsemane is holy ground. We ought to just thank God for the work of Christ at Gethsemane. The second thing I want to share. Jesus didn't have to go. He didn't have to go. In Mark 14, 36, Mark describes that this way. He says, Abba, and Abba is Aramaic for father. Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. You see, it was possible for Jesus to walk off this stage, return to heaven, and watch the world go to hell. It was possible. But his love proved, his love was proved in his, in his obedience. His love is proved by his care for the disciples. Three times he went back to them and tried to remind them to pray with him. Three times they failed. Three times they denied him. Jesus' whole mission was a mission of love. He did not want men and women to suffer eternally for their sins. He came into the world to save us from that sin. And because of his love, he continues that drama. Peter says that he delays his coming so that people can come to know Christ as Lord and Savior. And then he says anyone, whoever, will accept him will be saved. Guys, that's a great love. That's a great love. So here we come to the point. Jesus had a compass. Jesus had a divine compass. You know what his compass was? He wanted to accomplish the will of God. You can have that same compass. There's not a cross in your future, but you can have the same compass, the desire to do and accomplish 
the will of God. In verse 38, he talks about his great grief. And then in verse 46, he says, Rise, let us go. Here, beca- here comes my betrayer. So somewhere between verse 38 and verse 46, Jesus' prayer was answered. And he is again at peace. His agony is gone. He is again at peace with God. And I think it's in verse 39. In verse 39, he says this, Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if this is possible, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. If if, if, If I can avoid this, May this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. The word is uh, plain, P-L-E-N, and it's it's translated yet. King James, it's translated nevertheless. If it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet... You know, there, there's a world of salvation in that yet. In that nevertheless. If it be possible, and as I just said, it was possible. But Jesus wanted to accomplish the will of God even more than he wanted to avoid the cross. Once again in the Greek, and I don't mean to give you a Greek lesson, but in the Greek, that passage, if it be possible is what's called a first-class conditional sentence. And what that means is not that if it be possible, but it could also be translated and probably ought to be translated since it is possible. That's the first-class part. Since it is possible. So Jesus said, since it is possible for me to avoid this cup, since it is possible for me to avoid going to the cross, God can do everything. Remember, it says without everything's impossible. Everything is possible with God, is what it said. And this is possible. It's possible that Jesus could avoid going to the cross. But if he was going to win the victory in our life over everything else, then he had to obey the will of God. And that's where we find victory in our life. That's where we find the strength to be more like Jesus. That's where we find the strength to live day by day. This is where we win victory. We have our own will. We have the things we wish were possible. We have the things that we wish that we could do. That you know, God gave these things to us. He created us with it. And, and some of us say, well, since God gave me this ability, that's, that's what I'm going to do. But we need to learn to say, yet... Not my will, but your will be done. What's our will? Well, our will is to live as we please. That's the will of our country. That's the will of our culture. We want to live like we want to. We want to live like we like to. God's will is to be obedient to Him and live like He wants us to. You know, God's will is for us to be in constant, constant conversation with Him in His presence. And because of His great love for us, God's will is based on His great love for us. 
We're, we're saved. You and I are saved today for one reason. Because God loved us enough to save us. Jesus' compass was a cross. And he had that compass from the very beginning. Several years ago, I had a friend who was going to go to Israel. And uh, he was going there for a work assignment. He worked for Intel. Uh, and he was going over there. He was going to be there for a while as a, as a worker over there. And he said, um, I'll have some time to travel around and look. He says, if, if you could just give me one or two or three sites in the Holy Land that you think I should see, what would they be? What would you say were the, the three most important ones? That's what I understood him to say. So I gave him my three top ones. Now, this was before Jennifer and I went in, in uh, January, but it was after I had been over there with my friend David. I said, there are three. One was the empty tomb. Now, there are two empty tombs. Now, Jesus is only in one of them. But, you know, there's discussion and argument about which one is the, is the real one. Well, I don't care which one's the real one. I've been in both of them, and they're both empty. You know? And, and that is a... a, a I, I, it was a moving place to be in the, in the tomb. I have a picture of Jennifer in January coming out of the garden tomb. Big old grin on her face. Because you know what she discovered in there? You know. It was empty. She was the only one in there. It's a it's a it, it, it's something else. You stand in the place where they laid him, and you can say with the angel, He is not here, he is risen. Another possible place is one I just shared with you, the Garden of Olive Trees that are called Gethsemane. Because that's the place where Jesus sweat great drops of blood because He loved us so. And it's here he, saw, he secured our salvation. And when Jesus looked at His compass and decided, I'm going to do the will of God. Now, you can go there with a group and you can look around and you look around and say, oh yeah, there's some olive trees and there's a church and you, know, you can go on your own way. And that's one way to look at it. But another way is to go over there and sit on a bench with your Bible and think and pray and meditate on what happened there. That's what I told him because he, he would have had that time. We didn't have that time in January. We were with a group and we had to move along. But he was going to have that time. I said, take your Bible and read the New Testament passages about the crucifixion as you're sitting in the garden. That's where Jesus said, Father, take this cup away from me. It caused the, cap the capillaries in Jesus' forehead to burst. And he sweat great drops of blood as he thought about it. If you think you've been good enough to go to heaven and too good to go to hell, 
you're not seeing things God's way. I want to be more like Jesus. I'm not going to leave you hanging. There's a third place. And I'm going to tell you about that next week. So be, be sure you come back next week. I'll tell you where it was, okay? Since you won't be here. Of course, you can zoom in. <laughs> um, no, but I'll tell you anyway. It's the uh, Caesarea Philippi. That's an awesome place. And we'll talk about that next week. Let's conclude this morning. Uh, we have the more like Jesus prayer. Lord, please show me the way today. Show me some aspect of your greatness I tend to overlook. Show me what makes you smile and what makes you sad. Show me people I can touch with your love. Show me who I need to forgive and from whom I should seek forgiveness. Show me where my walk and my talk don't match. Thank you for showing yourself by sending your sign, Jesus. Amen. Brother Mike.